0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tjasa Zeitz. Did you know that migraine is three times more common in women than men, and two-thirds of patients with Alzheimer's disease are women? gender differences are real and they matter the women's brain project is a swiss-based international non-profit founded in 2016 it comprises a diverse team of academic and social scientists medical doctors engineers patients caregivers artists and ai experts and focuses on understanding sex and gender differences in brain and mental diseases to pave the way for precision medicine. This involves tailoring medical treatment to the individual characteristics of each patient, including factors like sex, gender, genomics and proteomics, microbiome, ethnicity and socioeconomic status. I spoke with Antonella Santucione-Chada, medical doctor and CEO of Women's Brain Project, and Anade, De, head of stakeholder engagement at Women's Brain Project. As we discussed, where are we with data about women's health specifics, what's driving research in women's health, what's the negative health and societal impact on women because of their predominant role in caregiving, and more. Enjoy the show, and if you haven't yet, make sure to check out our newsletter, which you can find at FODH.substack.com, that's FODH.substack.com. A summary of this discussion and a broader topic on women's health is also going to be published there. Now let's dive in. Anna Antonella, thank you so much for joining a discussion for Faces of of Digital Health about the Women's Brain Project and the importance of taking sex and gender into account when assessing neurological issues. The Women's Brain Project is a Swiss-based international non-profit organization, and for starters, I would like to hear a little bit more from you about what kind of research do you do, and how does it get funded?
1: First of all, thank you so much for this opportunity and the willingness to showcase the work that the Women's Brain Project is doing. What we are addressing, it is indeed the unmet need and the gap that exists in medicine of not considering sex and gender as a determinant of health. What we know is that women have not been sufficiently included in clinical development, starting from phase one to phase three clinical trials. Uh, even when post-marketing authorization studies without that uh, sex and gender are reported in terms of uh, safety profile of drugs or clinical efficacy. But uh, another big elephant in the room, it is uh, the lack of consideration of sex and gender in preclinical research, meaning our experimental animal models that are used to characterize uh, diseases, the way humans, the de- disease and Uh, what we need to consider to develop successful treatments. Now, the same applies for digital technologies, and uh, there the bias also exists in a data set used very often uh, representing just part of the population, being predominantly male. We do research on all these pillars that I just uh, mentioned, from preclinical to clinical development and even novel technology and digital innovation the way we support our research it is to have a network of highly skilled researchers working on the science but also having collaboration with stakeholders such as the pharmaceutical industry policymakers regulatory agencies etc and in this way we co-create we have sponsorship and supports for what we do we are now transforming from an association into a foundation and that's where we hope that even more capital to support our science will come now just one final comment innovation and research has high costs with maybe not a direct immediate return of investment as for other area and that's why we need the commitment the support and the trust of all stakeholders in fostering this evidence generation-based exercise and invest in the great science we do.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to go a step back. You mentioned basically that women have been underrepresented in uh, the studies, in clinical trials, in pre-clinical trials. Why exactly uh, is this happening? Why did this happen? Is there a lack of guidelines in terms of the inclusion criteria? It's obviously a complex topic. Well, I think that there are a multitude of reasons. First of all, medicine, it's an evolving
1: science and learning and discoveries happens on a daily basis. I think that women were, for a time period, excluded from clinical development for all kinds of good reasons, considering also that there was a scandal in the 70s, about the teratogenic effects of specific drugs on offsprings of, uh, of women that were pregnant and included in trials. So, there was the reluctance for a time period to you include uh, women, especially in the childbearing age, into clinical development and, uh, and trials. Nevertheless, times are changing. We have the evidence that by doing so, by including women, we have not serving the female population, rather harm them because they were proactively ex- excluded. So we don't know for many drugs the way they really act on women. And uh, especially when it's about safety, what we also observe is that uh, the female population experience more uh, side effects than the male one very often. This was the case also, for example, with the COVID uh, vaccines. And um, we believe that uh, we have an opportunity to improve medical care, to improve research, to improve clinical development, to achieve what we call and define precision medicine. So to your question, many reasons, time to change, and it's a great opportunity for better clinical development. One other aspect I want to shortly touch base, it is just the bias that it is embedded in medicine being mainly medicine developed, designed, created by male colleagues, which were the predominant workforce in the healthcare system and in research till a few years ago. Now we have an opposite trend where women are taking the majority of the seats in medical schools and scientific disciplines. Nevertheless, what we just seen published in Nature is that there is a huge dropout from the highly educated skilled research scientists and doctors from the highest position within academic and uh, research organizations. So again, it is time to reverse this trend. It is time to retain the talent in the room and uh, to correct for this uh, intrinsic biases. So in general, humans are intrinsically biased. We are more prone to take care of things which are similar to us. So if you ask me who will solve the problem, it's going to be the women in the lead that will solve the problem of uh, sex and gender gap in medicine and we need therefore more women in leadership Mm -hmm.
0: at the moment we are where we are we've got uh, drugs that are approved that are on the market uh, solutions that are on the market and at the same time we see that they might not have been evaluated properly but they are on the market so given everything that you said What's uh, the process of going forward? What's the best approach for solutions that are already out there? So one thing is to change the criteria of evaluations for new things that are still about to come to the market. And the second thing is things like uh, vaccines or uh, products already out there that we now see through either uh, side effect um, reports that have different effects uh, on women. So do you think or do you see that there's more evaluation of real world data to figure out how can we still mitigate the knowledge that's lacking because of the, the differences in the gender responses to solutions and drugs? Well, uh, based on
1: my direct interactions with my colleagues, which are still within regulatory agencies, I think that there is now a very high level of attention to this uh, problem. And certainly big learnings are coming from real world evidences and real world data that are constantly characterized when a drug it is uh, approved on a given market. And uh, I think that the entire medical and scientific community is posing a huge attention on this uh, unmet need and the publication manuscripts uh, working group research activities are just happening to correct for the unmet need so i think that we live in the era of big data i think that data do exist it's just uh, to use the sex and gender lens and realize them and uh, reposition the learning i think it's a great opportunity for everyone because uh, as soon as you take the sex and gender lens and start to look at the data uh, you will have so many learnings, so many new opportunities of uh, redesign your clinical development to have those sex and gender-specific tailored solutions to bring to patients. And this will benefit time to diagnose, the way we treat, the way we manage the patient, the way we reduce costs related to the healthcare system, because by characterizing, for example, drug interactions that we know it's a major issue in the female population, with even little side effects like problem with the liver, uh, et cetera, or the immune system, for example, it means that while characterizing this drug interaction and reducing possible side effects, you will reduce the time to the, the frequencies of uh, rehospitalization, hospitalization, seeking for a new medical advice because a problem arose. So I think that, again, there is a huge opportunity that it's ahead of us. We have to be the driver of the change and we will have better solutions, more sustainable, more affordable, more accessible for the patients. Mm
0: -hmm. Women's Brain Project has been founded in 2016, so you have quite a few years behind you. Can you talk a bit about the key findings that you uh, came across so far or the biggest uh, successes that you've had since the inception of the project? I will give the opportunity to Anna
1: now to illustrate the great success on the policy side of things, and then I might
2: add something on the scientific side. Please, Anna. Thank you so much, Antonella. It's very important to note at the Women's Brain Project that the science informs the policy, so, in terms of our policy activities, we very much respond to the global policy agendas across the world. We liaise with policymakers. We're talking about the likes of the World Health Organization, the OECD, the United Nations directly, the World Economic Forum, these types of players, and to some extent that dovetails into EU policy and also, of course, national policy because healthcare. Um, service and delivery is very much um, a national competence. So we're very much involved in trying to shape a more favourable policy environment when it comes to looking at brain health and mental health through a sex and gender lens. And then what we try to do is to proactively inform the policy agenda. So that, from a policy point of view, we have a number of Women's Brain Project-led activities and also deliverables for evidence generation. So one in particular stellar piece of work we did from a research point of view um, was with um, the uh, Economist Impact, where we um, put forward a white paper looking at sex and gender um, and brain health research, how we could have a more inclusive research agenda. And this was very much health economics analysis and basically the rationale was that if we have more of this approach in the medium to long term we're not just doing for um, our health and for our brains we're doing also better actually for society as a whole from an economic point of view so very much going to policymakers saying that it's a bit of a no-brainer it's good for health it's good for people, it's good for women, um, family, communities at large, but it also makes economic sense in terms of the benefits, medium to long term, as regards national um, gross domestic product and so on. So we had this um, economic piece of work that was issued as a policy white paper earlier this year. And now we're doing the second phase of this research with the London School of Economics and Political Science. And this part of the research um, will be a bit more granular we'll be coming up with our own economic modeling and that will be launched during the course of q1 2024 and this is how we try to actually further the knowledge base also from a policy point of view so very much the science is informing the policy but then in terms of policy we will actually come up with our own research as well and um, talk about that to key stakeholders we also more from a an advocacy point of view, we have awareness raising campaigns. So we did one last year where we looked at migraine, and we had a specific campaign on women and migraine. As migraine is three times more common in women as opposed to men, so we had a specific um, advocacy campaign on that. And also at the moment, we have a specific um, policy led campaign looking at how to enhance care in Parkinson. So we really across the board. a policy point of view our point of departure is very much how can we respond to the policy agenda and that's not just in terms of brain health policy but also looking at social care looking at technology looking at education looking at gender equality so really across the board in terms of policy agendas and then we also try with that very strong research piece coming up with our own research to inform policymakers of sex and gender differences when it comes to brain health and mental health, but also being proactive, coming up with potential policy solutions. That's really important for us.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit more about the migraine research insights? So what have you discovered? How did the campaign look like? Who was informed uh, about it? I'm, you know, trying to think what the next step could be. Should women receive different drugs? Should doctors be uh, aware in a different way uh, about how to treat migraines with women? So can you talk a bit more about that?
2: Yes, of course. And then I'll pass over to Antonella who can talk about this more in detail from a scientific perspective. So we had a social media led advocacy campaign at the end of last year And it's still online. We still have a page there on our website. So you can find all the campaign assets. So this was a specific women and migraine awareness campaign. And it was called Not All In Her Head. So it was a play on when we dismiss something and we say, oh, it's just all in your head. So we wanted to be creative. And we came up actually with our own campaign logo. And then also this tagline, Not All In Her Head and um, basically we wanted to reach out to a number of different stakeholders so first and foremost we wanted to reach out to the patients we also wanted to reach out directly to healthcare professionals but also looking from a societal point of view of employers and then also reaching out directly to policy makers as well there was a key policy component and we had a policy call to action so our starting point was very much migraine affects three times more women than men, as I've already highlighted. Also, the symptoms tend to be slightly different in terms of women suffering longer attack duration and also having a higher recurrence rate. And basically, we saw that through the campaign that many women are not diagnosed early enough. And then also, in particular, in terms of healthcare professionals, they're not very much aware of, of the differences when it comes to sex and gender in migraine. Also, what we wanted to flag in particular, that migraine tends to impact women mostly during their peak productive work force years. So we very much wanted to highlight the impact this has in terms of the workplace, whether that's missing days off work or actually still going to work but not being fully engaged in the workplace because of the impact of migraine and also making sure that people understand that migraine is a really really very very challenging condition it's not just a headache so it's not just oh you have a headache take a painkiller it's much more than that it's a serious neurological condition and it can have a huge impact On daily life impacting careers and family life and um, women tend to um, bear the brunt of that so we were putting across all these key measures and then from a scientific point of view we do understand that female hormones can be a migraine trigger as well so that was also looked into from a scientific point of view but certainly Antonella can give more details in terms of the science on this
1: I think that we have an abundant scientific evidence is explaining why the female brain and body is more prone to a migraine attack because while it is certainly your head that hurts. It's uh, your entire body that stops to to function. We still don't know why female hormones really play such a major role in many disease areas, not only in in migraine. Migraine is just an example. We have the same uncertain issue and and unsolved mystery in Alzheimer's disease. We have it in multiple sclerosis. Why? We have that the female body and the female hormonal setting impact those diseases in a different fashion than in men in terms of prevalence disease progression diagnostic treatment response etc so that said i think uh, that our work is really aimed to understand the science and then translate the science into those political measures that needs to be taken to facilitate the life of citizens living across the planet. And of course, each nation, each geography,
0: its geopolitical constellation will have its specific needs. One of the findings that I saw in uh, one of the uh, videos that you did was around the findings in Alzheimer's disease and the fact that two thirds of uh, patients are women. Can you talk a bit more about that? Do we know why does that statistic come up? Is it related also to age? I was thinking that women have a longer lifespan than men. So technically speaking, men have a lower chance of actually reaching the age where they might see the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So what has science shown so far uh, around that? I can
1: start with an answer and then maybe, Emma, you want to head. First of all, let's say that we have to discuss on the myth of women living longer. Yes, women do live slightly longer, so it's not about 10 years or 20 years. It's about a couple of years, in average, in our Western societies. So the question is, how do women age? And in terms of comorbidities and quality of life for elderly women, the data we have are not very encouraging. What we know is that women do have, as you rightly said, majority of dementia cases. We know that women suffer of chronic diseases like depression much more. We know that women have problems with the mobility system and, you know, how we move in time and space in terms of muscle strength. And so often they become embedded to a point that the OECD shared data lately pointing to the fact that majority of the women worldwide, at least for the nations that share data with OECD are indeed women. So we speak about nearly 80% of the affected population, but interestingly and sadly, the women represent the majority of those that are institutionalized, meaning elderly homes or nursery homes. That's because very often they don't have a caregiver, they're a widow and nobody cares for them. This translates into even a higher. Prescription of antipsychotic antipsychotic drugs are a poor indicator of standard of care. So I hope you understand that the problem is huge. The same is true for painkillers. Women mm-hmm. have a higher prescription of pain painkillers when they become old, pointing to the fact of what I said that they have more comorbidities. They have a much more painful life at the end of their existence, and we need to change this trajectory. Alzheimer, it is not really well understood why it should be more female in fact. Lots is speculated about the hormones, the fact that uh, there might be profound changes uh, between the perimenopause, menopausal phase. But I will add that uh, the problem is even rooted in earlier phases of our life. Let's think, for example, about sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation, it is much a female phenomenon due to the fact that uh, women do care, give women are having pregnancies and quality of sleep is very poor um, while we breastfeed, while we are pregnant or while we care for our toddlers meaning that uh, this lack of sleep could be also a specific female uh, risk factor for Alzheimer's. These are all things that are at the moment investigated in the medical and scientific community. We need to generate the data, but I think that uh, what is even more important is to understand how this translates into a more better care. For example, we've had three let's say, two approved drugs in the United States and the third one, which unfortunately failed in reaching clinical efficacy for Alzheimer's disease as disease-modifying treatment. And what we learned with our big surprise, and now we are trying to understand and characterize this data even better at the Women's Brain Project, is that the trend shows that um, those new approved EMT seems to act better uh, in the male population and not in the female population. So just to say that it's not all in our head, As Hannah said before, the data speaks for the fact that this matters, that those sex and gender differences have an impact in treatment response, in safety profile of drugs, and we need to take this into account, reduce cost, improve quality of life, and avoid, as I said, even little side effects in some cases that actually in the past shown that out of 10 drugs that were withdrawn from the market, 8 because they had major little side effects in the female population. And that's not a joke. It's not a joke for those who perish, who die, which means women. It's not a joke for those who devolve and devote their life to the research for 20 years, bring the drug on the market and then everything goes into the garbage. And it's not a joke for those who might have benefit of this drug, because I strongly believe that in a given subset of patients, that drug might have worked. But it's just unfortunate that it wasn't characterizing women, mainly causing arrhythmia and therefore little events that this drug is to be completely withdrawn from the market for everyone, men and women, tall and short, or whatever. And that's what needs to change if you want to also reduce the cost of the impact of all this, because this is a huge economic loss.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. What I started wondering while you were mentioning all these findings is, what is the relationship between research and medical practice. So to which extent do you see that these findings are recognized in the medical community? And also we are now trying to quantify the issues related to to gender differences in everything that you talked about. But at the same time, clinicians see thousands of patients. They might notice differences and differences in responses already in their clinical practice. Mm. What are your observations there? I was, or is it? I was a clinician myself, and uh, I was seeing on a daily basis
1: uh, patients living with dementia. I was trying to give a proper diagnosis a medical treatment and help the way I could. And actually, this was less than um, 12 years ago. Nevertheless, I didn't realize that the majority of my patients were women. So it was for me a high opening attending an event in Lausanne where some advocate came and said, Alzheimer's female. And I said, What? I'm seeing patients every day. I've never realized that. So, to your question, it's not a given. It's not a given that uh, the medical community knows about all this sex and gender diversity in terms of symptoms, disease progression, treatment response, and uh, safety profile of drugs, as well as adherence to to, to a given treatment. So, we are educating proactively on this. For example, we are launching, and Hannah will expand on this, a series of educational events with Medscape, uh, just to exactly do what you said, educate the healthcare professional worldwide on those differences. These are slight nuances, but those slight nuances might lead to a delay in diagnosis of five years. I'll give you an example. I was the one who diagnosed, unfortunately, a friend of mine with multiple sclerosis. She was coming back from finally an MRI. She says, come up, have a look at the scans and tell me what's going on. And I was the one who had to convey the very unfortunate message. Of course, she was a friend, a uh, delicate situation. But uh, the story is that she was five years in and out of hospitals in this part of the world. So I'm talking about Switzerland, France, Italy, highly developed healthcare system where she was told she was depressed. She had depression. She was stressed at home. She had labyrinthitis. She had all possible diagnosis with even hospitalization. Until five years later, someone thought, let's do an MRI and noticed that she had plaques all over the brain and all over the spine. And nobody really thought of that earlier. So now, these slight nuances or this prejudice, these preconcepts, these biases we carry as professionals in our brain might lead to a delay in diagnosis of five years. Mm. In a highly educated lady and in a highly advanced healthcare system. So imagine what happened. In the rest of the world. And with this, I stop.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Anna, did you want to add anything? I would just say that goes back to our starting point, that we look always at sex and gender differences. So to Antonella's point, so it's not just the sex biological differences between males and females, it's also the gender differences. So it's as a woman goes through the health system, how is she acknowledged and treated by healthcare professionals? So Indeed, in a bit that was highlighted during our migraine awareness campaign, but also to Antonella's point, we cover a whole raft of neurological conditions. We see that time and time again, that women are dismissed or there's a lack of real appreciation and understanding from healthcare professionals. It could be that a woman is dismissed as just being depressed when there's something else going on. So it's educating and informing a whole range of different stakeholders on this and coming with them, with us, on this journey to improve patient care for everyone. Although we're Women's Brain Project, we also care about men's brains as well. We don't just care about the patient, we also care very much the caregiver as well, because when it comes to neurological conditions, the, the unpaid caregiver burden is quite significant and in most of the caregiver burden in that setting whether that's family members or friends is dealt with by women as well so we also have to make sure that we're supporting them and also from a policy and societal point of view what is the impact of that caregiver burden as well so we do a lot of work also in that space and then specifically just back to the point of alzheimer's A lot of people ask us, oh, it's just because women live to be slightly older in general that perhaps um, you have two-thirds of all patients with Alzheimer's are women. That's part of it, but there are also other factors. Those might be hormonally led. There are other factors, but I think a real key statistic is that at the age of 45, you take a woman who's 45, She has a one in five chance for the rest of her life course of having Alzheimer's disease. You take a man, exactly the same at age 45, he only has a one in 10 chance for the rest of his life course of getting Alzheimer's. So there's something else going on there. And that's why Women's Brain Project, we really want to ask the questions, but we want to find the answers. And many times we start to do the research and we find out people haven't even looked into this area. So that's why we very much, we're driven by the research and we're like okay if we don't have all the answers we're going to find the answers. so whether that's through the science or the policy we try to find the answers I think that's really important and then just more from a public awareness point of view which I find fascinating I'm based here in London and I speak to so many women and when I say I'm supporting and leading efforts for the Women's Brain Project as regards policy and advocacy and they're like oh Women's Brain Project what is that and What are you doing? And then I mentioned to them in terms of um, the disproportionate burden or whether it's Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, migraine, or if you look at even, say, stroke after menopause, that affects more women than men after after menopause. And stroke is commonly thought as a man's disease. But you tell many educated and informed women here when I'm networking at events in London, and they have no idea absolutely no idea so I think a lot of it is having it's quite simple it's us as women having these conversations and informing and educating ourselves so only my background as a global and European health policy and you would have asked me some years back Anna what is women's health and I would have told you well it's women's health means reproductive health it's um, very much connected to that side of things. So, whether that's C, it's menopause, it's these types of things, it's breast cancer, ovarian cancer. I didn't think women's health was safe. Women's health is also brain health, it's also mental health, it's also cardiovascular disease. So, when you think of health differently, that we have women's health and we have seeing it from a different angle, I think it's very important that we educate and form and as women. We empower ourselves and we have these types of conversations. Mm-hmm.
0: So what I'm hearing is that basically we are identifying the right questions, but we're in very early stages of getting the right approach to finding the answers. And which data do we even uh, gather? Because causation is not necessarily correlation. So it's very tricky to even think about where do you start the research?
1: Well, as I said earlier, I think we have plenty of data It's just an exercise of analyzing this data using the sex and gender lens and making sense out of them. It's also about all the data already existing in-house and uh, repurpose this data with the question, what if I would have had more women included? You can do a lot of modeling exercise, also thanks to novel technologies like AI. So the question to pose, what if I would have included more female patients in this uh, specific disease area in terms of the response I would have had? a given outcome uh, of a trial that i was designing so the opportunities is huge i think we know which are the questions to pose we also know where to find the answer what i think we need to do it is to power for it meaning putting the financial resources behind it to let this change to happen it costs a bit more we all know that if you want to make more precise solutions you have to Maybe invest more upfront, but the return of investment in 10 years, five years uh, from when you started, it's going to be much bigger. And that's, again, a very much female way of thinking. I think that women have the long strategic planning and we are trained like this just in our role as mothers, even, right? You get a child, you don't think about the child's survival just today, you just worry for the future of this child by default. So that's why I reemphasize the fact that uh, the female scientists, the female doctors, the female policymakers, the female communicators, the female decision makers have to take the lead and fix this on the long term, because it's not going to be a solution that will happen tomorrow. It's, you need to transform proactively with time and along the journey. One thing that I want to emphasize about Alzheimer and women, it's one point that it's very dear to me, but I know that it's even more dear to Anna. It is the role of caregiving and women. And a specific risk factor for diseases like depression and dementia itself. What we know is that if you are a caregiver and this is a job that comes at 24 hours seven, you have a higher likelihood of uh, being socially isolated, which pose you at risk of depression and even Alzheimer's disease. This is what WHO says, and this is what the uh, science, scientific evidences support. So even here, we need to have a change at a policy level to guarantee that a woman, which majority of the film caregivers are women paid or unpaid end up in doing this job for good and night and day because we pose at risk the health of that individual so we need to have policies to to support on the caregiving to to divide the work which is so overwhelming that can represent a burden for our brain health and that's not a joke because then you become yourself the patient that will impose the need of caregiving with burden for society, burden for your family, burden for the healthcare system. So it's all about prevention. It's all about putting in place the right strategies, the right policy measures to prevent this to happen and lift the heavy weight that it is on the shoulder of women. And that's mm-hmm. all over the world. That's all over our lifetime. It starts when we are young girls to till the end of our life.
0: If you would have to pinpoint to three things that you hope to see happen, to move the needle forward, what would it be? Like the three things to just, yeah, the three key things that need to change. I know that you basically talked a lot about that in your last answer, but still, if you would have to... I tell one and Anna can have the other two. For me,
1: the most, and I'm learning this the hard way on a daily basis, There is this striking numbers of just 3% of investment given to innovations driven by women. Three versus the men who get it all. Now, to solve this problem, it's not only about innovation. It's about putting the money behind the science to answer those questions we discussed. So we need funds. We need money behind it. We need someone who says, that's the check. Go and do your job. Across sectors, across academia, across everywhere. We need to do this everywhere. So for me, it is the investment. People need to invest and understand that there is a huge return of that investment in terms of lives, quality of the way we do medicine, equity, diversity, inclusion, a better world, a better society and a better care. Anna, it's your turn.
2: I would love to see sex and gender differences in brain health and mental health prioritised on global, EU and national policy agendas. And I think we're starting to get there. But in terms of policy, it's not just regarding brain health policy specifically or even health policy. It's beyond that. As I mentioned earlier, whether that's social care, employment policy, um, technology policy gender equi- equality education across the board and um, we really need to um, have this um, major priority um, and especially so as we're um, living in an increasingly aging population and so on and I think to Antonella's point about women and caregiving that I'm partic- particularly passionate about that it's it, I find it very cruel actually when you think about women as caregivers because I think from little girls onwards, we're seen more as the caregiver. And then basically, there's a certain point that we as women are socialized to do all the caregiving. And then because to the point earlier that women tend to live slightly longer in general than men, that when women then need care themselves, there's no one left to care for them. So their care needs at a certain point become very different. And then they need to rely rather on institutionalized care. Um, paid care as well so it's almost oh thank you for the years you cared perhaps your partner and so on and now it's your time for care you're completely you're now you're ill you don't have the financial safety net and you don't actually have a partner so thanks for your caring but now you need care Who's going to help you? So also, I think that's also not just about brain health, um, physical health, emotional health. It's also about financial health as well in terms of we as women have to be very careful in terms of our financial um, health and our pensions, what have you. So there's a whole other debate there. So that's obviously part of the the policy agenda. So that's what I'd like to see prioritised from a policy point of view. And then the second thing I think, Mainly, and that's back to my point earlier, is that let us as women, as a community, come together and really educate and inform ourselves about what is women's health. That it's not just women's health, it's reproductive health, but reproductive medicine. It's beyond that, it's much more. I think I'm really passionate that we as women, and I'm talking here more about the lay public as women, they're educated and informed about the risk factors, and and also about a woman's journey throughout the life course as well. So whether that's from young adulthood right up to the way to perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, that we're really educated um, as women. I think that's really one of my my passions, that we we talk more and we support each other as a community. And I want
1: to make a comment on this. Uh, We don't even really know what it is, menopause. That's the truth. I think that there isn't even enough evidence, care, or consideration of what menopause is. So I th- we need to prioritize a lot in terms of the research we do and how we shape the patient management. A lot of work. And I think that the change should come from the younger female generation, educated as scientists, as doctors, as leaders to make the change
0: to be you've been listening to Faces of Digital Health a proud member of the Health Podcast Network if you enjoyed the show do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast subscribe to the show or follow us on LinkedIn additionally check out our newsletter you can find it at fodh.substack.com that's fodh.substack.com stay tuned